Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CDC. Thanks for joining us here today. We're going to jump right into today's episode, but uh, just a quick note, if you've missed any of our previous ones, check those out at your favorite podcast feed, or you can find all the past episodes at Gotham Gazette or at the CBC website. Give us feedback. Tell us what you think. Recommend future guests. Uh, whatever you want to say to us, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax, and Maria's at Maria Doulis. And of course, you can find the work of CBC at the Citizens Budget Commission website and our ongoing coverage of city and state politics at the Gotham Gazette website. So we're excited for today's episode of What's the Data Point? Our guest today is the city's labor commissioner, Bob Lynn. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Maria. Thanks for joining us. And before we get into our conversation with Commissioner Lynn, here's Maria with today's data point. 7.42%. The compounded salary and wage increases for members of DC 37, the city's largest municipal union for civilian workers, under a new contract negotiated in June. The contract spans 44 months from September 2017 to May 2021 and provides a 2% wage increase in the first year, 2.25% in the second year, and 3% in the third year. The contract is important because it is the first to be negotiated in the mayor's second term and essentially sets the pattern other municipal labor unions will be expected to follow. When applied to the full workforce, the cost of the wage increases will be $3.4 billion in fiscal year 2022, although the new net cost to the financial plan will only be $1.3 billion in that year. The city had already set aside funding for 1% annual raises, and part of the cost will be offset by $1.1 billion in savings from health insurance. The man responsible for negotiating this deal on all the city's labor contracts, Commissioner Bob Lynn, is here to discuss this deal, the dynamics of negotiating with the public workforce, and why health insurance is an area that was long overdue for savings. Welcome. Thanks, Maria. So um, there might be some things in the data point that you want to respond to, but before we get back to that, um, you have one of the most, from my perspective at least, interesting, complicated, important jobs in city government, but very often you're obviously behind the scenes. We see you on occasional media appearances, but it's really good to have an opportunity to talk with you. And just for listeners, just a couple, you know, a minute of, of sort of your background. Sure. You know, you're, you've had a, a long, distinguished career. Um, how would you summarize it? <laughs> well, thanks very much. Uh, for those who uh, aren't totally familiar with my career, they sh- everyone should know that this is my second stint um, as the head of the Office of Labor Relations with New York City. Uh, I started first in the Koch administration, um, where I was uh, first uh, on Deputy Mayor Basil Patterson's staff uh, as his counsel. Uh, I then became general counsel of the city's Office of Labor Relations, and then spent the full 12 years of the administration um, doing labor relations, participating in labor relations in the city of New York, right after the city's fiscal crisis. Um, that was a uh, fantastically exciting time. Um, I think that we, uh, in the Koch administration, solved a number of issues and really were very helpful in bringing uh, the city back to financial stability. Uh, I was then away from the city for 25 years, um, and I was involved in labor consulting. I did work with a, a number of cities um, in the Northeast, in sh- uh, Chicago as well. Uh, I represented a couple of unions at some point, including the PBA. Uh, and I then uh, worked with the hospitals and was involved in lots of negotiations with the city's hospitals and the League of Voluntary Hospitals, the 1199 union. Um, and then in uh, 2013, um, I received a call uh, from the uh, 
first deputy mayor elect Tony Schurz. Um, and Tony uh, said he'd like to talk to me, and in that conversation, um, I said that I thought that the city faced some extraordinarily uh, um, difficult times. I know the CBC had discussed it. The New York Times had recently written an article about the difficulties of bargaining with 143 bargaining units uh, for 350,000 workers um, and a whole host of issues I assume that we'll, we'll speak about. Uh, I spoke to Tony. Tony said, would you in be interested in coming back to the city? Uh, and I said, I have to say that the most exciting years of my life were the, the, the years that I worked with New York City, um, that there were few challenges more exciting, few issues more important for those who were involved in labor negotiations, um, and I'd think about it. And he asked me if I would meet with the mayor. Um, and I had a uh, uh, breakfast meeting with the mayor at the uh, Purity Diner, and we sat and talked about the, uh, um, uh, about the labor relations, and we both expressed our common desire to prove that collective bargaining could work in the public sector and that we could demonstrate that all that had been said um, in the public sector in Wisconsin and around the nation, that public sector can't, that public sector bargaining can't and shouldn't be allowed, that we could prove it wrong um, and that we could demonstrate that working together we could accomplish a lot of things going forward. Uh, and uh, we both agreed it would be exciting to do that, um, and I agreed that I would come back, and uh, I've now been involved with this for four and a half years. So, you know, fiscal crisis was obviously sort of the singular, very um, pivotal moment in the city's, um, in the city's recent modern history. It was important to, to, you know, negotiations were important in the wake of that, um, but you also stepped into this job when it was facing an immense challenge. So we wrote a report um, that basically they laid this out before the mayor began his administration. And to set the scene for, for listeners, all of the labor contracts had expired. Now that is not something unusual that happens between administrations. What was unusual was that they had been expired for several years and that no money had been set aside on the labor reserve. The prior administration had taken the position that hey, we gave some pretty good raises in the middle 2000s. Now the recession's here. We don't have money for any raises. It's going to have to be net zero. So these contracts were expired for almost, you know, some of them, um, almost Bloomberg's entire third term. No money had been set inside. And so you stepped into this job having to negotiate contracts that were expired for many years with no resources really available for the retro pay that the city typically made. Um, and a special challenge with the UFT because that contract dated back to 2009. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, Maria, as, as difficult as you made that all sound, it was even more difficult because uh, of the 350,000 workers, 150,000 hadn't received two increases, the other 200,000 had. Um, and Halfway through the bargaining, the last administration said, we're not bargaining anymore. There was Lehman Brothers. There was a whole set of financial issues that were important. But 200,000 workers enjoyed 2-4% increases, uh, had those 2-4% increases in their pocket, had been spending them since 2008 and 2009, and 150,000 workers hadn't received those increases. Those three unions who had with the major unions, which was the UFT, uh, 1199, and the nurses, and those the three right? groups right. were all outstanding. Some others were as well, but mm -hmm. those were the three biggest of the, of the groups. And they had 
sort of initiated a process that was binding arbitration for 1199 and the nurses, the hospital workers and the nurses, which was going to reach a binding conclusion where the city has very limited appeal rights. And the third group, the biggest, the teachers were involved in fact-finding. Mm -hmm. So the city faced three proceedings that were going on when we arrived, each of which could lead to a decision that was tremendously difficult for the city to deal with because it could involve and was likely to involve full retroactivity of two 4% increases for these 150,000 workers. That full retroactivity would have led to basically spending every dollar and then some that was possibly available. So the issue for the city was, what do we do about those 150,000 workers? Do we say we're not, we're refused to engage in the, uh, uh, in these arbitrations and fact findings? Do we say, take the same position that they can't have what everyone else got? Or should we enter into a process of discussions to try to resolve this. So I think well, let's pause before you sort of tell us how it okay. all became resolved. What's important, I think, to explain to listeners is that, yes, the city has all these many collective bargaining units, and the way to make it uh, impose an order and a sort of reasonableness around the whole process is that there is a pattern, right? So one union goes first, it establishes a series of wages, and then the other unions match that. And that is the expectation that both labor and management have going into negotiations. Yes. And it's, it's really, it is virtually impossible for an employer with 140 some odd bargaining units to possibly expect that it's going to bargain separate, different relationships, separate, different contracts with each of these groups. The only thing that can make it tenable is to establish an initial framework for bargaining and then to hold that in the bargaining that comes up. And that is, that is the approach. And it was exactly that thought that led me to recommend to the mayor and the first deputy mayor and the budget director that we don't ignore the proceedings going on, that we will very much be bound by what goes on, and we should actively participate in that process, and we should seek to reach an agreement that can work for us, can work for the, the members of the unions, and can work for the public. Um, and that was the process that we began. Uh, and the result of those discussions, starting with the UFT, was not to just resolve the two years of those two 4% increases, but to incorporate those two years in a nine-year agreement, which I think was an unprecedentedly yes. long agreement, though one should keep in mind that five of those nine years were retroactive. Um, which is why but, we're talking now, which is why right. we're talking four years now. later, yes. right? <laughs> and, uh, and, but the, and actually now it's six years were <laughs> retroactive by the time we, we, we got done. Um, and so we used, we, we, we agreed with the unions to work together to establish not a two-year contract, but a nine-year contract with the understanding that the first two years was basically settling old business was settling those two 4% increases from the prior administration and wrapping that up in a fair way, and I'll get to that in a, in a minute because it was not easy to deal with that, but to wrap up those increases and then to do a seven-year agreement which would create the pattern for our bargaining going forward. Now, dealing with those two fours was a very expensive issue for the city because four, five years of retroactivity of a four and then another four are billions and billions of dollars. And we agreed 
with the UFT and the mediator who helped, uh, who helped construct this, uh, this agreement, that we would reinstate those two fours over time. So rather than having 8% retroactive, they would be reinstated as 2% four times, starting in 2015. So there's a 2% in 15, 16, 17, and 18. And the dollars of the retroactivity would not be paid immediately, but that they would be paid out in the future. This is very similar to actually something done in the 80s when there were the wage deferrals of the fiscal crisis. Mm -hmm. And we agreed that over the years to come, that those that back pay would be would be paid. So we agreed to a reconfiguration, restructuring of the old pattern. It did generate the two four percent increases, which were critical to the labor movement that those be uh, those be uh, reinstated. But it did it in a way that was both fair to the workers and allowed us to then continue doing other collective bargaining, as opposed to to basically spending every dollar and then having a problem where we couldn't bargain for years, we created a structure that we could afford the, a, a seven-year agreement as well. And in that seven-year agreement, which was, a very, which was very restrained uh, in the first several years, um, there was no increase, I think, in the first year, and then had 1% increases for three, the three years after, we were able to structure a, a deal that, in fact, worked out and has, has proved to be affordable. Let me, as, as the layperson at the table yeah. among the three of us, um, and, you know, I try to pay close attention to this, but, you know, so forgive me if I'm capturing something incorrectly. Both of you can feel free to jump down my throat with corrections. But um, so in essence, I mean, in, in some way you, you spread out what was not necessarily a liability, but, you know, in, in the way of thinking about it, you wanted to make sure to do right by labor from your perspective. They, you wanted to make sure that um, you could figure out a way to sort of normalize the big pool of unions that you needed to settle with. Mm -hmm. And in some of that, it was, it was moving some of the, of the raises that you determined you were going to give or that were owed in a sense later down the road and spreading it out as opposed to front-loading it. Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think that with critical to the bargaining from the vantage point of all 350,000 workers was to reestablish the pattern. Mm -hmm. And the pattern was a total of 8% that had been given to 200,000 workers by the Bloomberg administration and not given to the other 150,000. So we needed to figure out a way to reestablish the pattern. But clearly, and this shows how the, the process of pattern bargaining, reestablishing the pattern meant in, the bar, in, in these negotiations that over time, the 8% had to be restored. So it actually, if you, if you left payroll, you didn't get those increases. Uh, if you leave payroll, you don't get any of the back pay. Right. So it was a different structure. But in fact, we, we were able to achieve the savings. And then, as you say, we were then able to use the contract that was then, then was affordable to then structure a seven-year deal, which was critical to not then find ourselves in the same place as the prior administration, which is not bargaining for several years. Right. I think the other thing that's important for the lay folks, as you say, Ben, to explain is that in the public sector in New York, the contract remains in effect, in a sense, until a new one is negotiated. And what has typically happened in New York City is that when a new contract is negotiated, however far past the expiration date, the wages that are awarded um, are often pegged to a date in the past, and payment is made retroactively for the wages that are owed based on that agreement, 
right? So this, I mean, this was incredibly complicated. Um, and, you know, CBC typically um, advocates for a more market-based position in some of these negotiations. But the truth is the pattern is the way the city conducts business and the way it's always done it and, you know, viewed very seriously in these fact-finding and arbitration proceedings by those who, who, um, who preside over them. Um, so it was a very creative solution to say we are going to adhere to the pattern. We recognize that we must do this, but we're going to sort of stretch it out over time. Of course, what that means from a fiscal accounting perspective is city was making payments in 2021 for services rendered back in 2009. I think given the situation, you know, that's okay. That's yeah, but, that was actually going to be – go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, but, you know, more importantly, I think what that deal did was, it, again, establish this very long pattern – going forward um, in this long deal so that it kind of brought stability to the first term. It let the, the unions all settle up and get up to date very quickly. And it set a very important precedent because for the first time, there was a viewpoint that said, okay, we're going to you know settle the contracts on salary and wages, but we're also going to talk about health insurance because traditionally these items were considered separately. And so part of what made those settlements affordable was that Bob and the, the Municipal Labor Committee said, okay, we're going to include some health insurance savings as part of the settlement. Yes. And, and, and before we get to the health insurance mm -hmm. savings, is what kind of, well, I guess two things on just establishing the nine-year contract. One, were you worried at all about the risk of pushing that retro pay out so far, you know, in terms of your, you're obviously working closely with budget officials. Was that a concern, you know, about how, how far off, you know, you don't know what, where the economy is going to be at that point. By 2014, 15, the economy was doing well, right? You didn't have the, the money set aside, as Maria said, but you did push off some of those payments. Yes. What was the was there a concern there? So look, let me if I could explain the bargaining process from the city's vantage point, because as the unions report to their membership and have a ratification of their membership, and really that really is the test of uh, whether a settlement is uh, works or not, is that it is ratified by the members and there's a ratification. And so that was part of the process when we say we wanted to make sure it was fair to the members. What I mean in part is that it gets ratified by the members. I, on the other hand, report to my membership and my membership um, was the first deputy mayor uh, and the budget director, who's now the first deputy uh, mayor, um, and Stan Bresnoff, who is now with uh, NYCHA, uh, was also part of the strategic team. And we would work weekly to go over the process and then so that we would always have a consensus of our group to, to then present to the mayor um, what we in, intended to do. So the issue in terms of when and how we make these payments was, was critical to the conversation. And I don't want anyone to think that uh, uh, we just came up with an idea and then, and then it happened. Um, it's a process where probably I came up with 100 different ideas and uh, finally one was accepted by my group along with the, uh, um, the unions and we reached an understanding of how this could be done. And we did push uh, increases out into the and and, uh, and lump sum payments, and I think it's important to remember most of the stuff that is pushed into the future are lump sum payments. So from a budgeting vantage point, while you have to cover them, they're not recurring. So that once they're paid, they're paid. So I think one of the things that actually helps 
when you look at the out-year gaps and the, and the issues of budgeting, is that most of the payments of that increase, of that, se- of that settlement, which is paid in the future, were lump sums and then disappear from budgeting in the future. Once paid, they're gone. So that really helps the ultimate uh, financial needs of the package, that they're paid. And we've, we've, so it's, it's far from, and some have charged, far, far from irresponsibly pushing costs into the future. We did the opposite. We pushed one-shot payments into the future, and the recurring costs actually come down. So it is a truly, as Mary said, a truly complex set of arrangements. But I think it is not; it shouldn't surprise anyone. It's turned out to be affordable because it was structured in a way that made it affordable. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I, I I totally understand your perspective. I think even that lump sum payment in those years has to be right. has to be paid. Mean, we, yes. But you know what to expect. Yes. You know that's part of where you're right. headed. It you know it just and it's not insignificant. I mean, we're, I think the. It's about two billion. The final file one was about two billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So it, it is quite a big chunk of money. Um, but again, it doesn't bring up the base in the same way. Um, so what about health? What about health? Yes. Right, right. So you asked about health, health. and or, so sorry, I, I took us no. into a different direction. So on health, uh, it's one of those sort of interesting ironies that I was involved in health negotiations in the '80s. Um, where so I want to stop you one second. Yes. I think it's really important to explain one thing to listeners about the city's health insurance before we get into what Bob tells us about his health insurance plan, which is the city of New York, very, very unique, even among public employers in its provision of health insurance, is that it offers a variety of plans. Most of the employees are in either GHI or HIP, for which the city covers the full cost of the premium and does so for retirees as well. So I think that's very important to explain as context before we go here. That also being said, previous changes, you know, uh, ideas about changing health insurance have been sort of floated in the past and met with Im- immense resistance and pushback from labor, right? Yes. So two important points to establish before Bob tells us about how so, he approached this. So we reached, we re- when I say we, back in the uh, 80s, mm-hmm. the city reached an understanding with DC 37 that it would pay the hip HMO cost of health care. Uh, and that that would drive the city's costs. And at the time, an HMO, which is a health maintenance organization, was viewed to be the most uh, cost-constraining approach to health. And it was thought in the 80s that using that approach was one that would force the system to to be to find efficiencies and to uh, and to keep the healthcare costs down. I must admit, involved in that settlement in the 80s. Never did I think that I would be back involved in negotiations in the 2014s, um, and basically that structure was going to remain in place. And so I think the critical thing to keep in mind is over that period, from the 80s back to 2014, while little bits and pieces had been talked about in health, basically the structure was the same 30-some-odd years later. And so the issue then became how to approach healthcare going forward. Now, that's yet of all the complicated things we talked about bargaining. Health in New York City is you deal with not on a contract by contract basis, but with the Municipal Labor Committee, which is an umbrella group that represents these 140 some odd unions, now I think 150 different separate contracts in place. And you bargain with them. And so the needs has to be an agreement that is reached with the Municipal Labor Committee 
that says this is how we're going to make changes. So what we came up with, again, in this nine-year agreement, was to set specific targets for healthcare savings. Now, let me explain. There's been a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about those targets. But the targets we set were based on our budget expectations of where health costs would go. And we actually inherited those from the Bloomberg administration. And they projected that health care costs would rise between 8 and 9 percent each year. And our budget then incorporated health care costs rising between 8 and 9 percent each of the years during our financial plan. I should explain that since the fiscal crisis, we have had to budget not just for a budget year, but we, get, we budget for and we, we, tell, we describe how the costs are going to work four years into the, into the future. And so if, through our whole financial plan, we had this 9% that was not our estimate. It was the estimate that we were left by the last administration. And I said, city said to the unions, if we can come up with savings versus those financial plan costs of $300 million in the first year, $700 million the second year, a billion and then $1.3. And it's just I, these numbers are so big. Uh, we have a very big workforce and a lot of health uh, care, uh, care costs. But we agreed that those savings would have to be found. And if we couldn't find those savings, we would have an arbitrator who would enforce the mechanism and the, and the different uh, either contract or uh, health benefit changes or employee contributions, whatever it took to get to those savings. And so we then embarked on a process, which was a four-year process, of labor and management working together. And I have to say, of, of the things that we have accomplished, forcing healthcare into an approach where labor and management collaboratively has to look at data, has to look at cost savings, is a sea change in how we're doing things. And if I could just add one. True. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. I want Thank Maria you. to Thank you. So let me just add one. Let me give an example. For the first time, labor and management sat down and looked at healthcare data together. And we said, what's costing us too much? What is costing us? Where are we not spending enough? And it became clear that we were had many too many emergency room visits. We had too many people using specialists and not using, using primary care providers. We were using urgent care uh, as opposed to the primary care provider. And we were doing things that made no sense. Based on the data, labor and management agreed that we would increase the copays for specialty care. We would dramatically increase the emergency room copay. We would increase the urgent care copays. And we would leave the primary care copay where it is to incentivize people to use the primary care. In fact, each of those things led to tremendous advantages. We've had a 14% reduction in, the, in using specialists. We've had a over 9% reduction in emergency room visits. 27% reduction um, in urgent care visits. So we used data together to establish changes in the plan that provided better health care. Because it's much better that an employee goes to a primary care provider to begin the process and, and, and establish a relationship with a primary care physician. 
So we had better results in terms of health care and substantial savings. I believe the process that we started dramatically changed how we do business with each other and led to these types of changes. Um, Yes, a lot of the things I think that you started to accomplish in these initiatives are are successful, I think are starting to bear fruit, and we see that in the value of the savings that are credited to the agreement. I think what's important to, again, provide us context is that, yes, the city was budgeting 9%. That is reasonable given the trajectory of health care costs prior to the recession. but the costs came in, the, the cost of health insurance premium increases came in much lower than those projections. And that really that difference is what was driving the bulk of the savings credited to the agreement, right? So absent the agreement, those savings would have been remitted back to the general fund used for other purposes. Um, the other way to kind of think about it would have been to measure using, a, you know, a, the cost of care for a series of base, you know, baseline group of individuals and then measure based on that. So that would have been an alternative approach, but not one that the, the committee chose to, to employ. Um, Can I respond to that for yes. a second? So, so look, some of the savings uh, were, were a result of health care inflation coming down somewhat. Had health care inflation gone up, we would have, the city would have been thoroughly protected because we had agreed that, uh, to the specific limits in terms of what would happen. I would agree that the process, because we delivered 3.4 billion of savings versus the financial plan. Some of the things are things that might have occurred as uh, simply by the healthcare costs coming down. But some of the things were vitally important and some of the changes were vitally important. It also established a understanding between labor and management, which was critically important for the next round of bargaining, which we haven't really gotten to um, yet, but continues this process of agreeing to um, to healthcare savings. Part of this next agreement is an agreement that the healthcare inflation will be no more than 3.5% next year and 3% the year after. So if you think about so, bending yeah, ex- the healthcare but, curve. Right, but explain to people how that could be, right? So people are reading the news, they read that insurers are filing for rate increases in double digits. Um, a lot of this is, was, has been impacted by the changes that have been made to the Affordable Care Act. So how is it that the city can say to, you know, insure, insurers can say to the city, yes, we will guarantee a 3 to 3.5% increase in premiums? So first of all, I don't tend, I don't come here as a sort of an expert on the ACA and the open oh, right. market and the individual right. coverage. And sure. much of the inflation um, that we're talking about is a separate market from the group, the big group employer market. Um, I do though, the, the, and so our projections going forward was that healthcare costs would go up over the next three years of the next contract at seven, six and a half, and six. So you see, we have built into the system a downward view that the 9% factor of inflation we viewed really needed to come down, and so we projected seven, six and a half, and six. At the time we were t- discussing this, none of the healthcare actuaries that we dealt with thought that we were being high on our projections. Many thought that perhaps we were low, and others thought that it seemed reasonable. So rather than those projections of take a look at the, 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 the second and third year of six and a half and six, we have an agreement from our health care provider that guarantees the increases will not be more than three and a half and three. How do we do that? Well, we do that with a series of, of changes in terms of um, how care is delivered, 
Um, we hope to redirect care so it doesn't go to expensive, um, if, uh, let's take an example of a, of a procedure uh, that may be done in a hospital um, and, uh, and could be done at a fraction of the cost in the doctor's office. Um, that is part of what we are, are working towards, which is again, trying to change the nature of how we deliver healthcare in a way that is not simply taking dollars from the workers out of their pocket, but reaching savings for the city and keeping health the health plan at least where it was before, if not improving. Because I believe that if an employee uh, receives a, uh, um, a service in a place that is, is better, not in the hospital, but in a, uh, in a doctor's office where it's appropriate to give that care in a doctor's office or in a specific center to do that or has an x-ray in a specific center um, that, is, uh, that is appropriate for giving that, that that is the best plan we can do. And so the constant approach to health has been we want to find savings but we're doing it in a way that is a collaborative way that makes the plan both more efficient and more effective. And have you picked the low-hanging fruit? Is it going to be much tougher in the next four years to, do, to get the TSA yeah, targets? I think each year um, has clearly become tougher uh, to, find these, uh, to find these programs. And not only are we um, now uh, have tougher stuff to look at, and that's for a reason we have lower objectives. This time we're seeking to get $200 million the first year, $300 million the second year, and $600 million the third year. But we've also established a, uh, a tripartite committee that is part of this process um, where we are going to look together to really dramatically make additional increases, uh, as, as different, different, make uh, dramatic changes beyond uh, the numbers that we were uh, and, the, and the approaches we were taking that we were talking about before. So we want to spend a few minutes on the DC 37 contract and looking forward in our last maybe five minutes here with Bob Lynn, the city's labor commissioner, and thank you again for being here. Just one question for me on the on the health uh, care and health insurance issue. I remember you know covering very closely the 2013 mayoral race and. It wasn't always at the top of the agenda, but there was a lot of discussion because the contracts were expired and because the unions were obviously so present in wanting to know who the next mayor was going to be and endorsing candidates and all of that. And one of the things that was discussed then was, can the, can the city really go on forever not having employees chip into the premium even a small amount? And you mentioned that as something that you put on the table uh, as part of the discussion saying we need to get health insurance, health care savings, but that didn't become part mm -hmm. of the deal that was reached. Can the city continue on in this fashion for the long term? Sure. Very good question. So Thank you. My, my view to begin with is in, the bar in bargaining from the, as the employer representative and as the public uh, representative in, the, in, this, in, the, in this process, you need to keep the eye, your eye on the ball. The critical issue is making sure that the costs are affordable. Many employers have the view that shifting costs to employees are the answer, is the, uh, sort of the, uh, the, sta the gold standard of where to get to. I don't believe that. I believe that the focus should be of how you bring down costs. I am not convinced that making an employee pay X percentage of the cost of health care means that costs are going to come down. All it proves, all it does, is you're certain that you're not paying them. 
And so every cost that goes up, you're only paying 90%, as opposed if there's a 10% uh, cost sharing with the employee. I believe if you can come up with a process where everybody is paddling together to keep costs down, that that is a more effective way of doing it. Ultimately, you may decide, look, there's just, there's just no more dollars that can go into health. But my view is that there is so much that can be done collaboratively, especially with a plan that hadn't been looked at for decades, that we should start by figuring out how you can get those savings without cost shifting. And the, incredible, the most important thing is not to have the resistance from the unions to looking at these issues. And if the unions are saying, forget it, we won't talk to you. And I have to say, as a negotiator, once you create a cost-sharing approach, you often have the situation that then that, that, that no longer a topic of conversation of how to keep costs efficient. And I believe it is a, a difficult, labor-intensive process, but we are better off where we are both seeking targets of savings and figuring out how to get there. And everyone knows if we can't reach those targets, ultimately, the final possibility is cost is cost sharing is, is is shifting costs, but we're going to do everything we can to avoid that for as long as possible, um, and reach these savings. Well, I think we could go on this topic yeah, for we'll, a long time. We'll, yeah. I think there are questions about whether you can think really big about the city's health insurance package, and you know, thinking about the union welfare funds, which provide in most cases prescription drugs, dental vision, and repackaging some of this. Come, you know, rebidding the city's health insurance business and thinking about how you can restructure that with a modest contribution and perhaps a better premium, but topic yeah. for another day. We should talk about the DC 37 deal, right? So, you know, first one sets the pattern, you know, yeah. from the layperson perspective, looks fairly reasonable, tracks inflation, again, includes health insurance as part of the bargain. Um, Don't call yourself a layperson here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> from the expert, from the expert. Watch, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Um, sorry. But you know, one one thing that was perhaps missing or a missed opportunity was that what we don't see are any changes to work rules, right? And so what we've said, one of the you know bad to do the contracts so let them expire so far and. Um, and, and negotiate them so late because, well, you know, it's not only the retroactive payments um, and the lack of predictability for the city, for workers about the, what they're going to make. It's also the fact that you can't do any of these productivity changes and recognize savings going back. But prospectively, you can. And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything in the last round, understandably. It doesn't seem like there's anything in this round. Or could there be? So let me uh, say a couple of things. First of all, the fact that we have solved hugely expense, potentially expensive issues in the bargaining should not be minimized. It should be really sort of front and center. I would never, we, we haven't talked about the, the understanding with the teachers on paid parental leave, which took a benefit that in testimony to the city council, I had said could conceivably cost a billion dollars over uh, uh, the four years of the financial plan. And instead of coming up with a cost, we came up with an understanding that was paid for out of collective bargaining and was part of the settlement. And we actually had a, a no-cost process by extending the last labor agreement to do it. 
So when one talks about work rules and what could be the change, I think one has to keep in mind that if you, if a billion dollars that might have been spent on paid parental leave was in fact funded out of a labor agreement, that's a pretty extraordinary um, accomplishment uh, that we and the UFT together um, reached. It's not true really that we didn't do any work rule changes in the last contract, and one of the things that we did was a, a complete change in the, the school custodian contract, um, where we changed how uh, custodial work would be done, and people wanted to change, to change that for almost a century, um, and we made major changes uh, um, with that. We did a number of other things. We couldn't hire school crossing guards, and we wound up with an approach for how to hire school crossing guards. School crossing guards were hired at the police precinct as opposed to a central hiring hall, and we made changes that made that possible. The health savings. We did a NYCHA pilot um, on expanded workday that uh, there needs to be much more, and we're having conversations about, um, about that in uh, now, but the point is we started uh, expanding the workday at, uh, um, at, uh, at NYCHA at the uh, last time. So I don't think it's fair to say we didn't make any accomplishments in the, in the work rule area. I think we tried to keep our eye on those things that had the most significant impact. Um, going forward, uh, I think that there are clearly where there are particular problematic productivity issues, um, we will look at them. And I, I don't think it's fair to say that we, we don't or we just ignore them. Um, that we will look at those areas uh, that are important and bargaining goes on and bargaining is constant, um, but we will in each labor agreement ex deal with those issues that are causing uh, problems uh, and, uh, um, and try and tackle them. I think in the DC 37 settlement um, that in fact um, that there are not a huge number of work rules that are tremendously unproductive um, in the terms of where you, where, where you deliver service. And I think that we, by reaching a settlement um, that is 44 months, um, which is uh, three years and eight months, um, with, uh, um, with, with the type of economics that were part of that settlement, um, we, we did something important. We also, in that agreement, established what we call an equity fund. Um, and that equity fund is a labor management approach to deal with those titles where there are recruitment and retention issues. Uh, and that we will pinpoint some of the dollars from the collective bargaining, um, not across the board, but to those titles where there are specific recruitment and retention issues. I think those- Meaning offering bonuses for hiring, or how does, exact, how does we that work? Al we allocated what uh, is 0.2% uh, of the package, but uh, again, the size, the 0.2% sure. is 12.6 million. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and that we allocated those dollars that would be used, it could be used part for bonuses, part for recurring costs, but for a subset of the entire community where there are specific recruitment and retention issues, we will focus on that. So I think that we are focusing on issues um, that is, is, is of great import uh, to the public, uh, and, uh, uh, and, but we're doing it in a way that tries to pinpoint our efforts to things that will accomplish the most. And um, I think we'll take one more minute on the paid parental leave from my perspective, and then if Maria wants to ask anything else, and then we'll, we'll get you out of here. We appreciate the time. Um, just, just, again, to go back to some of my frame, because I cover a lot of the politics of it, it's very interesting, of course, that 
2021 will come around and we'll be talking about uh, the contracts again. And who knows exactly what your role will be at that point. Um, but we'll be, you know, looking at another mayoral race at that point and people having to answer questions about what they would do about the workforce. So that, that'll be interesting. But we can talk about that another time. Um, just on the paid parental leave, and even what you said about the custodial contract, you're getting at things that are union specific, right? So you yes. are setting these these bargaining agreements, but there's also some union specific things. So just, you know, explain a little bit about how you approach union by union. You know, the paid parental leave sure. seemed like it was something very important that that really came to the fore for UFT members, um, but doesn't seem like it'll be, you know, that much of a priority for others necessarily. So in the same context of pattern bargaining, which establishes what I like to call the economic framework for discussions, is the capacity to bargain specific issues that are of utmost importance to the membership of that group. And the perfect example is paid parental leave, where for the teachers, establishing a benefit that had six weeks of paid leave for teachers uh, and for uh, the, uh, uh, the the parent, the birth parent, and also the uh, the father in, in in some circumstances or an adoption, the uh, um, either parent, uh, those became that was a critically important issue. Uh, I think those who uh, saw the the testimony at the city council saw how impassioned the view was. The city's view was that look, we have a very strong compensation system for our employees, um, we ought to figure out a way of creating this very, of establishing this very important benefit um, in a way that doesn't add hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to the budget. Um, and so the UFT came forward and we spent months in negotiations figuring out something that would work for the 125,000 people that were covered by the UFT contract in the context of teaching and the DOE um, and making it work there um, and came up with something that I think we can all be very proud of. Um, There's two basic prongs to covering the cost, right? Will you just go over those sure. two? So we did, we, this was actually, we did this as part of the last contract because we're now in negotiations for the new contract with the UFT. And we, um, we agreed that we would extend the old contract and that the old contract would be extended by uh, two months and 13 days, that provides savings forever because all future wage increases will then be two, two months and 13 days later. So there was the savings from the extension of the contract and we provided a benefit that was paid for out of the union welfare fund which led to some pension savings and those pieces together wound up saving the total cost of paying this benefit. And the, and the payment of the benefit is, is basically the city has to figure out coverage for teachers who are going to be out for paid leave? No, we actually, we pay into the union welfare fund. That's a piece of the, but we pay into the union welfare fund. Um, we pay about $50 million a year, which is there to pay this benefit. And the union will administer the paid parental leave out of their welfare fund as a welfare fund benefit. Um, the city, as part of the cost, has to figure out, yes, how to cover uh, and how to make the schools work. Uh, and all of the arrangements that we took months to negotiate made sure that this was going to be something that we could accommodate um, and could work within the, uh, the mandate of delivering uh, 
uh, delivering uh, student uh, uh, education. You've been very generous with your time. We like to ask people sort of what's coming up for you. We know because you've got this mountain of contracts to negotiate. Final question is on the PBA, which has filed for arbitration. Proceedings are underway. How risky is it for the city? I mean, typically those nego- you know, those proceedings um, favor the PBA, not the city, with the exception of the last one. Yes. Um, but it is a big risk, right? Those arbitrators tend to give raises that are much higher than the city negotiates as the pattern. So look, my history in this last four and a half years was also a uh, PBA arbitration um, where the arbitrator held the PBA to the pattern. Uh, I believe that we've negotiated a fair and responsible settlement, uh, and I believe that we will, uh, when we eventually get to uh, arbitration, we're still a long ways from starting that arbitration. We don't have a neutral panel member yet, and there's a lot of issue that could be litigated before we get there. But I feel confident that when we get there, um, we will establish that we pay, pay a fair and responsible package to our police, um, and that the, the pattern of bargaining will be upheld. Okay. And for those that don't know, when you say we haven't gotten a neutral arbor, there's yeah. a three-person uh, yeah. yes, panel indeed. that decides, a representative from the union, a representative from the city, and then uh, a neutral party, which can be challenging to, to find. That is correct. Labor Commissioner Bob Lynn, we appreciate the time. Uh, hopefully we'll chat with you again at least one more time before the end of this term. Very good. I've Thanks enjoyed being, being here. here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.